You all set for retirement, mate? Yeah. My sis will look after me. Claire, did you win the lotto? Not my sister. My C-Bus super income stream. Sis. Right. With as little as $80,000 super, Sis works with the pension to provide a steady paycheck even after you retire. Seabus for all of us. To consider if Seabus is right for you, go to seabussuper.com.au for PDS. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is the final word cricket podcast with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins brought to you this week as a co-production between Sydney and Perth. Adam is in Perth. He's arrived in Australia. They let him in after many, many flight cancellations and uh, much angst, much to do uh, about something. And eventually he's got in. He's in Ellen Bond's 80s hotel in Perth. And I'm reliably informed he's had deliveries of baked goods, donuts and spearmint milk. Everything is going according to final word plan, thanks to the uh, wonderful listeners who are out there making this happen. Hi, Jeff. Yeah, it's had a real final word energy in my first five or six days, depending on how you, you interpret it here at Hotel Quarantine. It's been one stonking day after another, looking at um, looking out the window at the Swan River. Great view, and I'm grateful that we've got a nice view. I've heard some nightmare stories of people either not having windows or looking at car parks or whatever else, but beautiful weather. A shame we can't sample it, but yes, as we've been sitting here and I wouldn't say killing the time because when you've got an infant, you're never really killing time. You're wrangling or you're, you know, you're trying to do work while mm. when he's crawling around trying to chew through a cable or you know, trying to console her after smashing her face against whatever it is. Like She's that age at the moment mm. crawling around. But got the, the spearmint milk, which we promised on Storytime. That came uh, from Jono Pickering, who many of you would have met at our live shows. <laughs> he's been our doorman at live shows in, in Melbourne over the last couple of years and he, he ran the holding pen at the... Uh, Stuart McGill show and uh, the other Zoom show we did with uh, Damien Fleming earlier in the year. But anyway, so Jono sent me up some some Masters Spearmint Milk. So I'll crack that open, Jeff, as you've been doing on Storytime and do a live taste test. Well, a lot of people have been mirroring my sort of theory that maybe it just tastes like brushing your teeth with a bit of chocolate in the mix. But it's hard to explain why that's good because <sighs> um, it does kind of taste like that, but it also tastes appealing um walk us through it that that that's really good i mean i i appreciate that it's not everyone's bag and yes for some it'll taste like toothpaste but to me it just tastes like western australia it tastes like seceding from the from the union it, it tastes like liberation it tastes like the mining boom mm. one and two and <laughs> uh, i'm going to enjoy it as we go through the show it's not the only delivery i've had by the way jeff uh, george norman one of our patrons who runs a, a bakery uh here in in perth and i've, I've uh, put that up on our social media feed last night he sent me through an entire box of uh, a box of bread uh, which was so cool not just bread like including uh, cheese and vegemite scrolls including donuts jam donuts was a, a talking point on story time a couple of weeks ago so uh it, again hitting all the right final word notes was the jam put into the donuts by a dolphin that's yeah, the key question. Hard to know. Uh, it did spew out from the top, though, which is what you want, isn't it? You don't want the jam to sit neatly, yeah. and it needs to be a messy experience to, to make sure you've earned it. Yeah, there needs to be a tension between you and the jam. You know, the jam is, <laughs> is there's, there's a relationship, but the jam is also escaping at the same time as, as you're internalising it. It goes back and forth. We're going to do something interesting on the show today, which is uh, what, in a very conventional kind of show way, we're, we're going to have a giveaway. Um, I, I 
I don't want to think that we're lapsing into commercial radio stuff already. I mean, that can happen. I was I was helping out Clint Wielden on on the um, ABC grandstand over the weekend, and they were running a secret sound segment, so which he was very amused about that that was happening on the ABC. <laughs> but um, this this is a giveaway purely in pragmatic terms because. A lot of people know that Earthboy is the musician who, who wrote the intro song to our podcast. It wasn't initially the intro song to our podcast, but it is now. And I have a couple of tickets to go and see a show of his in the Blue Mountains on Friday night in Springwood up in a beautiful part of the world in the Blue Mountains, which I bought a couple of months ago thinking, oh, you know, I'll, I'll take a, a night off and, and head up there and watch this show. But I'm working at the cricket, the tour match uh, between Australia and India, the warm-up game for the test matches is a day-nighter and I've been called in to do radio there so I can't go to this gig. And I thought, well, look, this show's going to go out on Wednesday, the gig's on Friday, so if, if anyone who listens to the final word is in the Blue Mountains area and would like to go to this show in Springwood, there are two tickets, you can have them. Just email us, finalwordcricket at gmail.com. There's no, like, write me 25 words about why you want to see Earthport. Just just email me first in best dressed. Um, <laughs> if, if, if I get your email first, you'll have the tickets. And maybe, you know, we won't have... Maybe, like, sign up on Patreon if you haven't done. Um, or if you're already a patron, send us an email and, and you can have them. You can go and check out the show on Friday. In 2009, uh, former guest of the final word, Sonny Munn, who's a well-known character uh, to a lot of people mm. uh, around the traps in, in Melbourne, uh, grade cricket or club cricket and just generally a man about town, he and another friend of ours, Casey McCutcheon, um, saw in the MX commuter rag, which used to get given out on, on the trams and, and trains uh, of Melbourne some time ago now before it went out of business but alas there was this thing where you, you sent through a poem of 25 words and they would send you all expenses paid to a, an Ashes test match and of course they bloody won it uh, so they went and spent a week at Headingley when Australia won in three days in 2009 they were flown out I don't know what the airline was but put up flown out and had an amazing few days on the tonk unfortunately we can't offer you that but two tickets to Earthboy oh, I'd love that that'd be, a, that'd be a lovely way to spend a Friday night it's, look, it's not bad. They're, they're worth 100-something bucks um, all up. So, you know, you can have them just because you listen to our show. Why not? Uh, what are we going to talk about on the show today? We're going to do a bit of role play, Adam and I, to spice up the relationship. Um, he's going to interview me about my book, um, which is slightly strange <laughs> on a show that I'm hosting. But, look, there you go. Um, the Comeback Summer is out. It's in shops. It's online. It's all over the place. The, uh, the cover is really pretty. I particularly enjoyed what the book designers did coming up with that one. They, they had to follow up the sandpaper cover from the previous book um, and, it, and it's out and I'm feeling pretty good about that. Yes, it's been the perfect quarantine companion over the last few days, your book, Jeff. So, <laughs> yeah, looking forward to asking you a few... I'm not going to say there'll be probing questions, but uh, giving you some space to talk <laughs> about your new creation. Andrew, probing questions. We've got a fair <laughs> bit of cricket to talk about on the show today. Australia and India in the T20s, the other warm-up games, South Africa and England. The two are being cancelled over there. New Zealand and the West Indies. Um, the World Test Championship, a little bit of nerd pledge. There's plenty to go on. On the final word today, no Bigger story, though, than someone who might not be playing a lot of cricket for a while. Will Pekofsky got hit in the head again today at the tour match while he was batting. He's had some unconventional concussions. This was the conventional kind. He, he played a ball really awkwardly from Kartik Tiagi and got badged just before the end of the day. You know, this, this sort of horrible sliding doors thing where if they'd called it off a few overs earlier, no. this wouldn't have happened. Or or indeed, if he'd been given out when he was plumbly before a wicket earlier um, before that. So, But that's 
it, it's it's just such disappointing news for him and for everybody who's been so excited about the prospect of him playing because very likely this means he can't play the first test given his concussion history. Yeah, or, or had he been caught in the cordon? He was dropped early on, wasn't he? Uh, it was one of those uh, situations where the bat-off, as, as it was being badged, it didn't quite go to plan for the Australian selectors with Bukowski or Burns. But yeah, the, I was gutted when this news came through this afternoon. I wasn't watching at the time, but seeing the, the replay afterwards and the way he went down. And look, the good news is that he was up and talking and he left the ground with James Pattinson and they're describing it as a mild concussion, but he's been withdrawn from the next tour game. And on the basis of his injury history, it's hard to see how they'll risk him uh, in the first test match. There's just such a higher risk profile, I suppose, when coming back from a concussion when you've had repeated injuries like Will. I don't know what number we're up to now, but it must be up to sort of eight or nine. Or, or you know, it's a big number. It's 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 noteworthy uh, that it's happened to him. If it was anyone else, I mean, a mild concussion might be the sort of thing where, yeah, they might miss the tour game, but it wouldn't necessarily bring their position into jeopardy for the Test match. But Will is a a unique case in this respect. Yeah, I think it is number eight. I remember him Mm. being up to seven before, but it does get hard to keep track of when there have been that many. And it was a decent enough hit in that he was was down on the ground for some period of time. He was on all fours after being hit on, on the wicket. And so it obviously shook him up whether that was more about being shaken by the idea that he'd been concussed again. I, I don't know, yeah, but yeah. it's it, it does get to the point where you think, well, how much is it actually worth playing cricket if if he's going to get sent out in a test match and, and potentially get hit badly, which can happen? You know, does that does that carry with it such a risk that it's not actually worth doing it at all in the end? And you know, that's a, obviously a, a really hard thing to come at for a young player who hasn't actually had the opportunity to have a career yet. Yeah, and it's really hard to decouple this from his broader issues that we, we touched on a little bit last week, but everybody knows, it's well documented, uh, the, the way he's withdrawn himself from cricket in the last couple of years. It's not as though he's hidden from it. He's actually talked really powerfully about uh, this in the past. And you, know, look, you can't quantify uh, the relationship. It's difficult to, you know, it's not everything, but it's not nothing, I suppose. The fact that the, this is these have been two consistent threads of his professional career, and even indeed when he was a, a junior player. So hopefully uh, that other work that he does day to day to keep his mind in good shape is uh, the sort of stuff that can mean that when he's fit enough he can return for selection uh, again and, and he might be able to play later in the series but yeah dreadful timing as it's been for him so many uh, times across the way and I suppose on the field Jeff as far as bad timing I mean what terrible time for Joe Burns to have a a rut. I mean, this happened to Matt Renshaw in consecutive summers. It's happened to Joe Burns before as well. I remember when he got brought back for that test match at Hobart back in 2016 against South Africa when he, I think he was strangled down the leg side in the second innings and it was like, well, that's uh, and, and the way he got out in the first innings too, if I recall correctly, it was like, that's a, the sign of a man who's out of form. Well, Burns has made no runs on the way into the tour game. Um, he's been out leaving a ball, which which never looks good, where it kind of um, ricocheted off, the, off the, uh, the the blade that was held high. And then chopping on today, it's almost the, the worst possible scenario for him. But it might be the case that he gets picked anyway on the basis that Warner's far from fit at this stage. I know there were positive reports in the press the other day about his hamstring, sorry, about his groin, I should say, but it's not a clear-cut thing whether he'll play or not, and now Pekowski likely, almost certainly, to be left out means that like, I can't see a world where Burns doesn't play. And, and interestingly, Marcus Harris looks like he might have just whilst himself 
back into the test side. You know, he didn't make huge runs in that tour game, but he made a couple of okay scores. And yeah. it suddenly looks a, a much more competent and, and fluent option than Burns is looking. So it, it might be the two of them if Warner's still out. You know, Burns probably holds his spot on that basis, but it. it if, if Warner's back, then maybe it's Warner and Harris, um, you know, back to the, the joys of, of the end of the Ashes yeah. series in 2019. Well, it does mean that from a situation of immense strength a few weeks ago, and we had that conversation with Barat about all the Shield players that made so many runs, uh, and, and that's still the case, but it's a, a different configuration, shall we say. I mean, we talked about Sean Marsh last week, partially tongue-in-cheek, but also semi-seriously, given the glut of runs he's made this year. But, I mean, on the coverage tonight for the T20, you know, there was discussions around him, you know, grain of salt stuff, of course, but, well, Matthew, could Matthew Wade open? Could Marnus Labashane open? Could Travis Head open? You know, like, looking at options in the short term from players inside the 11, whether they can do, do it that way, which can then facilitate a spot for Cameron Green, who made a most impressive century. I watched the majority of that on television. Jeffy wrote about it for the ABC as well. I mean, I've seen enough of this bloke now on the streams, and, and this week as well, To it's fairly clear that he's going to be a serious test cricketer and this might be the opportunity this might be the way they get him in by bringing him in at six and, and reordering the top half of the, of the batting lineup and he was impressive I, I think strangely enough the detail that impressed me most watching his innings live was that you know he took a long time to get to the hundred but that wasn't a sort of nervous 90s thing that was just the same way he'd batted all day long he wasn't flustered when Michael Nisa ran himself out when Green yeah. was on 99 and Nisa was doing the team thing and trying to scamper through for a single which wasn't there. Green just recomposed himself and kept going but once he brought up the 100 he didn't do what almost every other player does which is then try to put the next one over the fence at long on. He just kept going about it the same way. Mm. Uh, he didn't play any big shots after he reached his ton and it was nearly the end of the day and he would have known they were likely to declare overnight and any other player would say, well, I'm going to see if I can add 20 in and over just for kicks. But he was like, no, nah, I'm just going to keep doing the thing I did all day just to just to put a full stop on it. And that, to me, stood out as, as someone who could have the patience for Test cricket. Yeah, and there are moments, aren't they, that, that, that'll stand out. And the shot he played to get to 100, I mean, Kerry O'Keefe was swooning on, on the TV, but hard not to. I mean, that classical extra cover drive on the up, through the gap and holding the pose and, and so on. Tall man as well, which means it really does... Distinguish itself when, when a player like that Plays a shot like that For those reasons and more I think it's entirely appropriate To name Cameron Green For the first time But maybe the first time of many As the Seabus Super Performer of the Week When you make 100 in a tour game That's all about trying to get a spot in the test team And nobody else makes anything significant In either innings Good on you Seabus Super Performer of the Week Is, is our award that goes from the heart of the building and construction industry superannuation fund because they love cricket and that's why they're involved with us. They manage over $50 billion of members' money and their average return over the last 35 years is 9.23%, which is also the amount that Cameron Green has grown each year for the last nine in a row. So uh, you can get a PDS to find out if that superannuation company is the right one for you at cbussuper.com.au with a proviso that past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. I was, um, I wouldn't say shit posting on Twitter. I was just kind of making the point on Twitter during uh, Glenn Maxwell's innings in the third T20 this evening where he made a, a brisk half century, albeit a chancy one. But India using both their reviews on Maxwell on um, spurious claims and then dropping him twice in the field. I mean, he's in their heads, isn't he? Uh, having played the way that he has through these six white ball games. Maxwell is 
in the heads of the Indian senior players. And on that basis, I mean, he has made a test century against India before. And I know I'll cop criticism for, for sort of pushing the case for Maxwell when, when he's had no red ball cricket. And this won't happen. But I just think it's worth noting if they were going to pick a bolter uh, there would be worse bolters than than G Maxwell on the basis that he is in this amazing form this ball striking if you like it short form cricket which yes it does require a transition into red ball cricket but there's something about Maxwell in India which which meshes quite neatly and you know he's never played a test in Australia no 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 better time to change that than (laughs) the next test match that Australia plays it it should be a possibility but I guess they've got such a such competition for number six I mean Matthew Wade's in the form of his life and has been for about two and a half years now and I think Australia's been quite wasteful with how little they've used Matthew Wade in a lot of ways you know hasn't been in the 50 over team hasn't had a lot to do in the T20 team until he was made captain and said all right I'm opening the batting um (laughs) you know I'm not staying down at six or seven and immediately started making runs but so so if we look across that we've had the the full three T20s and and a one-day match since last time we recorded it was interesting that across those games the the Australian team was wearing the indigenous jersey they were doing the Mm. the barefoot ceremony at the start of the games with the walkabout wickets artwork and uh, doing doing these sort of symbolic gestural things towards reconciliation it was interesting that this happened in the same week when the wallabies had the national anthem sung in darug in the language of the aora nation they had an indigenous translation of the anthem sung at the Wallabies game the other day and then the regular anthem as well. And there's been some some discussion around that that's quite interesting. I mean, the typical reactionary stuff from right-wingers who just don't like anything about Aboriginal Australia being mentioned at all, but also some interesting analysis and criticism from a different perspective. Chelsea Bond is an Indigenous woman, wrote a really powerful piece she's a, an academic and highly credentialed in this area wrote on a piece on the guardian about this about how that sort of gesture is it it brings all of this goodwill and it gets all of this good sort of press particularly from white australians but it it's not it's not achieving anything because it's fundamentally saying we're going to talk about respect for indigenous culture but not actually be willing to be upfront in addressing the issues that Indigenous people are facing, the incarceration, the deaths in custody, the shortened life expectancy and all the rest of it. Yeah, so I, th- I thought that was a great piece on The Guardian because it, it made you stop and, and consider this different perspective because, you know, instinctively you see the Wallaby sing that anthem on, on Saturday uh, and, you know, it's, it's a moment of immense pride. Um, how could it not be? It's a statement. But then you stop and consider the fact that the Wallabies weren't taking a knee. A number of um, members of the rugby senior ranks yesteryear so on uh, explained why that wouldn't be the case. And, and they were uh, making the point that the problems that exist with race aren't the same in Australia and therefore that the taking a knee wouldn't have been appropriate. I'm, I'm paraphrasing there, but that's the gist of it. So, look, taking a knee, as we've talked about repeatedly on the final word since, since May this year, uh, and, and the, the spirit behind it is to ally with the anti-racist campaign. It's to sort of explicitly say we are involved in anti-racism. And 
this isn't that. Like the, the barefoot circles and the Indigenous jerseys are celebrating Indigenous culture, absolutely, but it's not a substitute for being part of what BLM has been pushing. Now, over here in the UK, I say over here, I'm in Australia now, in the UK, the way that's been morphed and twisted into some idea that BLM UK being some Marxist organisation and thus there's some broader political... Like, fuck that, really. I mean, that, that, that's complete noise. That's the usual suspects in the right-wing media engineering a, a situation where it muddies the waters. What, what it boils down to is that athletes around the world have taken a knee in solidarity with this movement, and the movement is about anti-racism. So I, I think that we should be excited about what happened with the Wallabies the other night. We should encourage the Australian cricket team uh, to do so, men and women, and I'm sure a lot of people within them would be, would be down for that, and that's great. Yeah, I, I thought... That, that piece by Chelsea Bond uh, was excellent in in shining a light on what the two what the two things are what these two threads are and not mistaking one for the other and that you can talk about symbolism you know obviously taking a knee is symbolic as well it doesn't directly achieve anything in that moment on that day but what it's pointing to what it's gesturing to is there is constant ongoing violence happening against yes. indigenous people in Australia every day it's it is happening, it's still happening, it will continue to happen for as long as it's allowed to continue to happen. And that the doing the sort of celebration of culture thing does have value, but it's also a kind of feel-good gesture that can make white Australians feel cheerful about the fact that they're doing the right thing and they have the right opinions because they're enjoying the the welcome to country and the the didgeridoo performance and all of the rest of it but in a way it makes it it, it packages that up in a way that's more easily digestible for white Australians or for any non-Indigenous Australians who are more recent arrivals who, who don't have to deal with the issues and the obstacles of being Indigenous in this country that, that is so hostile to Indigenous people so much of the time. Yeah, and I don't want this to be um, uh, confused with us criticising CA as an organisation. The Reconciliation Action Plan process is an outstanding one. and You can go back and listen to uh, our interview with Dan Christian earlier in the year for, for more about that. The preamble to the Barefoot Circle was just brilliant. I mean, in terms of the words they were using about deaths in custody since the Royal Commission in the mid-90s. I mean, it's all there. Well, they're, they're not shirking the issue as far as... The, the language that's being used uh, in and around the ceremonies but it, it is to me anyway it, it does stand out that there's been a decision made at some level to avoid taking an E uh, because at the moment that is the gesture which allies with the anti-racist movement it's it's a, a complicated one where teams without black players or indigenous players feel that they're unsure about whether they should be doing it. I suppose it was quite notable in the WBBL that the the Sydney Thunder team took a knee entirely, you know, as as one um, Hannah Darlington, a prominent Indigenous player yep. in that team. The uh, Hobart Hurricanes, for the most part, did. Uh, they had Haley Matthews of the West Indies and Chloe Tryon of South Africa in their team, and other teams without that representation mostly didn't take the knee um there were some players who did there were all of the english players in the wbbl did it individually within their teams and so there is this lack of surety i suppose from from teams or players to say that is it is it hypocritical for us to be doing it is it an, an empty gesture for us to be doing it for instance in australian cricket in a sport that has so little indigenous representation mm. but on the other hand if you've got a, a 
a team, the, the men's T20 team, playing in the last three games where Darcy Short is in that 11, that makes it potentially more compelling, mm. the, the argument, to go ahead with that. But I suppose all of these things have arguments in either direction which can be worth listening to as long as they're made in good faith. Across those matches, the, uh, the third T20 ended tonight. Australia got a consolation win after losing the first two, uh, the flip side of that in the one-day internationals where India lost the first two and then won the third. It's been a pretty exhilarating sort of 10 days or so of very, very intensely crammed in cricket where they've they've played every second day through the T20s. We've had a lot of good ball striking, a lot of bowling, a lot of um, Glenn Maxwell, Maxwell ball uh, for you and I to enjoy <laughs> and, and plenty of... Other a lot of Virat Kohli runs, which uh, which is important for the broadcasters who are enjoying pumping him up while he's still out here, and also quite amusing to notice that they've they've adopted Hardik Pandya as their next. He's their next sort of big Indian star, and they're saying, why don't they keep him for the Test series? Because the Australian broadcasters are very keen for him to stay for the Test series. I can tell you that. Yeah, yeah, it certainly feels that way. Uh, it, it, well, in a way, it was. Uh it was a, a junior bowling lineup compared to the team that was playing at Dremoyne. So Dremoyne, James Pattinson, Michael Nisa, Mark Steckity, who bowled very nicely uh, in the second innings and took a bag of wickets, but especially the first two, Pattinson and Nisa. I know they're not known necessarily as white ball players, although it must be said that both have played in the IPL, Nisa years ago and Pattinson uh, very well this year. But it was, you know, Daniel Sam's getting his first chance and good on him. I mean, he was on, he spent all that time in the bubble in England in both squads and he's been with the, the team throughout uh, this preparation. I'm glad they gave him an opportunity. And yeah, sure, they lost on Sunday and he was bowling the last over and Pandy's two sixes off him but he did get Coley out and I think he you know he did bowl a very good first over he's shown plenty in the field and I think the reality is is that between now and the next World Cup which is what 10 months away he is going to be part of it and he needs to play cricket for Australia it's all good and well to be a big bash player or picked up in the IPL as as Sam's was this year in squads and sitting on the bench you've kind of got to play so I'm glad they they took that attitude same applied to Sean Abbott who you know blew hot and cold a little bit but at least he gets those miles under the belt we talked to Nick Holt when he wrote the, the book about the England World Cup winning side and they did that formula and they worked out when you arrive at a tournament you need to have players having averaged XYZ in terms of games played and runs made and whatever you, in other words you can't take players in cold to a major tournament so investing time in, in Sam's and, and Abbott made sense likewise Swepson I mean what a fantastic performance I mean getting Coley in the first game albeit taking some tap after that four overs one for 25 on Sunday three wickets tonight Jeff he was just about the match winner uh, with the ball for Australia in, in the dead rubber. After the, 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 the form he showed in Sheffield Shield cricket back in October and earlier November, to back it up as he did in the T20 team, I mean, he, he is really ready to make that next step. It was a, a period in the third T20 where it was Swepson and Zampa, two league spinners bowling in tandem, and they just put the brakes on through the middle and then Swepson picked up two wickets in and over and suddenly it was all but gone. And then AJ Ty as well, who yeah. um, had a period of getting battered around when he was playing for Australia, but he, he bowled a couple of overs for nine runs, I think it was, at the end, or maybe yeah, two overs for 11 towards the end and they couldn't score off him when they needed you know 70 off 36 or whatever it was and it was interesting that Aaron Finch gave Sean Abbott the last over when it was a it was a sort of pastoral care over because Sean Abbott came back in for the third one day he's been absolutely mauled in every game that he's played he mm. 
that first one day he got a wicket early. He bowled eight overs, one for 36, I think it was, and he ended up going for 84 off his 10. Um, like he just got absolutely collared at the end. The first T20, he bowled two overs and got dragged because he was going at 10 and over, didn't bowl again. Same happened in the second T20. He was going at 11 and over, I think, and, and didn't bowl more than two. And tonight his first couple went for 26 and he was getting again absolutely smashed but Finch made a point of bringing him back mm. and saying you're you're going to bowl you're going to keep doing it and he did take a wicket late he did help ensure that they wouldn't be able to charge for the win and so the last over was kind of a gift to him because they needed 27 from the last over with tail enders in it was exceedingly unlikely that it was going to happen but it was still sort of saying you get to bowl the last over in a game you get to be the finisher with the ball even though it's weighted in your favor so that you've done that so you've had that experience exactly. once so that you might be able to come at it better next time. Yeah, exactly that. That's how I read it as well. It's like you may need to bowl an over like this in a tournament so you'll have one under your belt. Picked up one wicket. Could have been a second. As it happened, Sam's who's fielded spectacularly put put a chance down from the final ball, didn't he? So he could have picked up a sort of a, a cheeky twofer at the end. Going back through... Two for uh, 49 or four would have been quite the figures. Yeah, I mean, look, exactly. I mean, he obviously took some tap but sort of bigger picture that we were talking about before. Oh, you mentioned Aaron Finch. Uh, Jeff, that was really interesting before Sunday's game that say 45 minutes before the game, so a quarter of an hour before the toss, we didn't know whether it would be Matthew Wade as captain, whether it would be potentially Stephen Smith, Glenn Maxwell even, uh, having been a, a big bash captain in the past. Wade, of course, being the incumbent vice-captain, and he, he ended up taking the armband for that game. But I reckon it, it's been a long time, or certainly not in the time I've covered the Australian team, or any international cricket for that matter, when you didn't know who the captain would be. That was partly a function of Finch doing a late fitness test and pulling out not long before they... We're ready to roll. But the debate on Sunday was all... Well, the only real conversation in town about cricket on Sunday was, will Steve Smith captain Australia again? Now, you know, it's a debate. I suppose it's ongoing, isn't it? But he's got some fairly strong voices in his corner. There's others who are, who are pushing the other way. There's, of course, Pat Cummins waiting in the wings, who's the formal vice-captain, but waiting, uh, not playing, resting at the moment. So, it, yeah, it feels as though this is a, a conversation that's going to keep coming up, given that, you know, Finch and Payne are, are both players towards the, the back end of their careers, and they'll probably pick up niggles and, and mismatches periodically, and I suppose that there's Smith waiting there who, who may want the job, and I mean, it, he didn't get it this time, but maybe he'll get it next time. I, I read it the other way, I think, I, I read it that it was really CA signalling that they're not going to go back to Smith because there were two interesting things that happened in that week. There was Wade captaining the T20, sure. Yep. There was also the fact that in the Australia A game, Tim Payne was in the team, but Travis Head was captaining that team. That's right, yeah. And that also seemed to be a gesture to say that this is the, the lineage planning, you know, this is the succession plan, is that Travis Head is an option. You know, Pat Cummins is formerly the test vice-captain, as you said. Whether they let a bowler be captain is another question. But, look, you know, Steve Smith is past 30. Tim Payne might go on another year or two. And it, it seemed as though there would potentially it could be a regressive step to go back to Smith rather than to move on to whatever is next because Smith wouldn't be necessarily a long-term captain if he came in after Tim Payne stepped down. He might only be there for two or three years. So it seemed, it seemed to be saying that it's going to cause such a fuss if Steve Smith is appointed again that it's not worth doing it. It's better to give it to an interim captain in Matthew Wade because then we don't have to deal with all of the 
the brouhaha, if you will, um, <laughs> that, that might bubble up from from Smith getting the captaincy again, even for a short time. Yeah, if anything, I've firmed in that view in the last, I don't know, what's it been? Has it been 12 months uh, since he's been formally able to captain again? No, it couldn't have been because it was, it was two years on from March. March, so March 29. I think, yeah, well, perhaps at March 29, I was tossed with the coin. Look, maybe it's a good idea. Maybe it's not a good idea. Now I'm increasingly of the view that just let this guy score runs and be happy doing that. Maybe the reason... I thought that they were considering their options was Justin Langer's interview on Fox when he said there was a process uh, where Steve Smith could captain again and they hadn't completed that process, whatever that means, fairly nebulous language, but nonetheless it was sort of a sense that they're not shutting the door on it. When Smith was asked himself, or might it have been at the IPL, he was asked a question about it. He did one of those Zoom calls when it was put to him. Maybe it was when we were in England, perhaps. Anyway, and, and he said that he hadn't thought about it, but he didn't really want to answer the question and give a fulsome answer. So I think that's code mm. for he probably does want to be captain again, but you balance that off against the idea that what does he enjoy more, making runs or having the stress of, of being the skipper? I think I think it's a fairly obvious answer when you when you reduce it to that question. Yeah. For the most part, having being captain seems like it sucks and yeah. you have to really want to be invested in that to do all the extras, all the attention, all the publicity and, and just all of the extra that would go with it. With him coming back to the captaincy, there would be so much... Like, the spotlight on him would be a whole lot hotter, whereas... As it is, if you can have a player of his calibre just doing what he does best, then why not just let him do it? Glenn Maxwell, across the last couple of weeks, we have to mention this. 45 in the first one day, 63 not in the second. At that point, he'd scored 108 runs from 48 balls for once dismissed. Made another 59 in the third ADI. Missed out in the first T20, but then made 22 and 54 off about 30 balls tonight in, in that extremely Maxwell ball innings where, as you said, two two drop catches, once out off a no ball, twice reviewed for catches behind that he hadn't hit, thus meaning that India used up both of their reviews. And in the meantime, there were a couple of reverse sweeps for four. There were a handful of sixes. Uh, There was was that sort of up-on-one-foot flamingo shot that he wristed over the bowler's head down to straight long off for four. Like, it, it was a ridiculous, ridiculous innings, and it was um, it's been a highly entertaining couple of weeks. Yeah, we said last week that he looked so happy playing the game. He's having the time of his life at the moment. I reckon he's having his golden summer. I mean, every player, not not every player, but, but most players have a summer, like, you know, a summer where that, that is the standout for, for them in their career at home. And I just feel as though there's no reason this can't be it for Glenn. Uh, granted, hasn't had the, the chance to play the Victorian games while he was at the IPL and he struggled over there. But since he's returned, he's dominated here. He goes into the big bash, you know, despite what I said before, I'm sure he won't be in the test squad uh, when they adjust it for injuries and so on. So he'll play, you know, all of the big bash season and then whatever will be will be as far as what happens in the second half of the summer with squads and, and whatever else with South Africa and potentially returning to four-day cricket with Victoria and, and one-day stuff and all the rest. And I suppose the, the overarching point is that he's hitting the ball beautifully. He looks so happy, huge smile on his face. Uh, I think that the way the Australian public are getting to understand him better, you still hear the occasional person on social media who kind of don't 
they'll never understand Glenn Maxwell. They'll never understand the the types of shots that he plays. They'll never respect him as a long form cricketer on the basis of the way that he plays in in T20 or at the death in 50 over cricket. They'll never put the pieces together. But I reckon more people have than ever before. And there's this like immense goodwill when he walks out to bat. It's exhilarating. Everybody's watching it together. It's a communal experience, and not every player, very few players, can can generate that kind of spirit around them. And he's got that going on at the moment. And I just think you know from our perspective having watched him so closely and backed him so much it's just lovely to see uh, so many other people getting the enjoyment out of the Maxwell story if you like uh, the way that we have over many years and I think it was I can't remember which online stato it was or if it was Swampy or Hypercost or one of the usual suspects but someone had picked up that Maxwell's one day series was the the fastest strike rate of any Australian player who played three games across right. a, an ODI series who'd made more than 50 runs in a series or something like that you know so anyone who'd made a significant number of runs he'd made them at about 190 across across the series so yeah you know that's that's what we wanted to see and it worked well I'm not surprised to hear that because he's just playing with such instinct that's I guess that's the other thing in the past when he struggled he, he sort of second guesses himself a little bit and doesn't know when to pull the lever it, it feels as though he's seeing the ball well enough that he can back himself from the off and that doesn't mean swinging from the hip from ball one, by the way. Usually he's giving himself you know, a dozen balls to, to feel settled at the crease before he starts busting out the tricks. But it's not as though... Um, like, if he misses one of his trick shots, he just plays it again. And I love that. That, that, that shows he's got this platform of confidence at the moment and that's reflected in the scores that he's making and it's really cool. It did prompt a debate though Jeff, didn't it? Ian Chappell and Harsha Bogley two former guests of the show I mean, you go a long way to find two people in the game who we respect more. I have such a high regard for both of them and and they've, they've taken a position that that has been prompted, I suppose, by the way Maxwell's batted and, and done so much switch hitting in, in recent times. And it, it does offer an interesting perspective, their view basically being that why should batsmen be permitted to change up in the crease if, if bowlers aren't able to do the same thing, even as far as which side of the wicket they, they bowl from. I hadn't really thought about it in that way before, but Ben Jones's retort was that when you switch hit, you are. It, I think he he, found, he worked it out that it's nine times more likely to get out switch hitting than you are in your normal stance. So so batsmen carry mm. so much higher risk in in doing that that maybe it offsets the concerns of Chapelli and Harsha. But they're worth they're worth noting that it's not for nothing when two senior experienced watchers of the game um, mm. come to that conclusion. Uh, yeah, I understand their position. I. I don't agree with it on the basis that if if you're a bowler, you should want the batter to be switch hitting because they're more likely to get out. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. just you you want you want batters to be playing ridiculous, outrageous attacking shots because it gives you more opportunity. And and the argument with bowlers having to nominate which side of the wicket they come from, partly that's just uh, for practical reasons because the non-striker has to know which side to stand. The umpire has to know which side they're watching for a no ball or they're watching the line of the ball for an LBW. The sight screen has to know which side it needs to be on for the bowler. And there's also the safety issue that a a bowler risks being scored from and a batter risks being injured. So to have some idea of the angle from which the ball is coming is a safety issue as well as Mm -hmm. a a cricket issue. Speaking of the more finicky stuff that came up this week, what did you make of the Ravinder Jadeja sub Malaki down at Canberra the Malaki at Manuka. Um I wasn't there I was watching it on telly you would have had a, a better sense of it like did you feel as though they were taking the piss or, or did you sort of see the Australians point of view about Chahal coming in as a spinner for an all-rounder like how did you evaluate that? Oh, I, I thought that was one of the 
biggest blow-ups for no reason that I've ever seen. It was like it was pathetic the way the Australians were arcing up about it at the time and, and sort of sulking through the rest of the night. The you know the fact is Jadeja got hit with four balls to go in the match. He didn't want to go off because he thought that it was important that he stay out there because he was smashing it and he wanted to keep smashing it. So he didn't signal for attention. The Indian bench didn't even realise he'd been hit. I didn't realise I was watching it. I was doing the text commentary for it and I wrote it down as he'd, he'd um, hooked and top-edged the ball away to fine leg. And no one realised at the time that it had been a top-edge flush into the side of his helmet because the ball ricocheted away. So it was only you know, a couple of the Indian players on the bench who picked up on the fact that he'd been hit. So, you know, he faced the next four balls, hit a couple of boundaries, came off and was in strife because he'd just been, he'd been hit in the head by Mitchell Stark. And the kind of idea that you're playing it up after you've been smashed in the head by Mitchell Stark bowling a fast bouncer in the last over of a T20 game is absolute nonsense. And in terms of the, they were, cracking the shits about like-for-like like replacement. You don't have 52 players in a squad so you can have an identical player. They were saying, oh, it's not fair because Jadeja can bat and then they brought a bowler on. Jadeja's a bowler. He's in there primarily as a bowler. He's a frontline bowler who bats. That's his job. And, you know, he bats at seven for a reason. But he will bowl four overs in just about every T20 game he plays. And Chahal wasn't picked because Jadeja was preferred. So, you know, the idea that oh, he'd hurt his hamstring, therefore they were sneakily getting themselves a replacement player who wasn't injured is just nonsense, I think. And in terms of a like-for-like replacement, you got a spinner who turns the ball away from a right-hander replaced by the same. So how there could be any issue, I don't know. I suppose the fact that they've got form were taking the piss based on... What was that stat last year that Jadeja touched the ball more than anyone in the competition in the field and only played like three games? He was on for every minute yeah. of India's uh, fielding innings across that, that stretch. That might have fed into it a bit. I think he played one group game, I think, in the right. semi-final. So, yeah, <laughs> maybe, maybe maybe he didn't play in eight games out of nine in the group stages and then, you know... Got more touches than Greg Williams in the Diesel Williams. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's, there you go for your niche footy <laughs> reference for the week. Uh, Jeff, before we move off Australia, so Mitchell Stark, actually, you mentioned before that he was in the first T20, left the bubble due to a family illness uh, for the second and third uh, T20s. Uh, so he'll have to do his three days back in before the Adelaide Test match. I'm sure they'll they'll make that work unless um, they make a decision for him not to play the first Test match on, on those um, compassionate grounds. But assuming he's he's returning, that'll uh, that'll all be sorted out. But good news from the tour game was that James Pattinson and Michael Nisa at different times, not not all the way through, but at different periods, did bowl the house down. So that if it turns out that Stark isn't able to play, they've got two very obvious uh, walk up starts. I can't really imagine a world in which Mitchell Stark would choose not to play the Adelaide Test, given that you know he's he's got the best record of any bowler in pink ball tests mm. in history, and he's he's such a an influential force in that style of the game. So I, I I imagine that if he's going through a hard time, that might be something that's appealing to him to get out and play a Test match. But yeah, the the way that that Pattinson absolutely hammered in was was impressive. He's still just such a physically imposing force, yeah. and um, and Nisa batted and bowled really well. And you know, watching Bharat Sundaresan's devastation when Nisa ran himself out trying to get green the hundred was <laughs> was really something to behold. I tell you, he was he he went away and sat on the hill alone for about half an hour after that. Bharat, he just I'd, he just I'd, took himself away from 
from the pavilion and, and was the one lone figure on the grass bank just, just contemplating life. I'd expect nothing less. When Nisa started poorly on the third morning, not poorly, but he wasn't sort of shaping the ball the way he normally does, I kind of thought to myself, there'll be some of the old buffheads will be texting each other saying, oh, this Nisa bloke, he bowls too fucking slow. Um, not int- but then he bowls Pajara with an absolute beauty about five minutes later. So I'm glad that he sort of just keeps himself right there in line and um, hopefully at some point through the test summary, he gets that baggy green. Over in South Africa, England, England have bailed. They're out. Game over, man. Game over. Um, they've, they've decided it's not going to happen. They played three T20s. They tried to play their one day as a couple of times, kept having COVID test issues, had a couple of false positives for members of the England party. I always like that phrasing, the, the England party, like they're popping off down to the the, the riverbank to have a nice picnic with their parasols but they've decided it's it's not going to happen and they bailed later finding out that their positives were not actually positive which I don't know it's it's an interesting one given how many teams did so much hard work to be in England over their summer and play there is there a sense that they've pulled the plug too early? Uh, I, I don't think so. The decision for them to leave had been made 24 hours before they received the false positives. So I suppose they have to work on the basis that the positives were legitimate. They couldn't have assumed that they'd subsequently come up negative. But yeah, you're right. I, to the extent that I feel sorry for Cricket South Africa, they are going to lose a lot of money out of this. And they've got Sri Lanka coming, I think it's next week. Australia are meant to visit for a high-profile series in February and March. There's been COVID in this bubble pretty much for the whole time really, in one form or another. There were players in the South African team missing in the T20s. Then there were tests coming up positive in the South African group before the first one day, which meant that it got cancelled at the last minute. They had two other attempts to get it on, on on Sunday and Monday, I think it was. I've sort of lost track of what day's what here in quarantine. But, yeah, after the third attempt, they're like, right, well, let's just put a plug in this. And, and they've, they've formally said they'll, they'll reschedule the series. How they're going to do that is sort of, I, I have no idea. I mean, we've, we've talked offline, Jeff, about them never just sort of saying that we're cancelling a series these days. It's always a, a discussion around rescheduling, but I, I can't imagine how that'll be possible with England's absolutely crammed tight fixture list between now and when the, the World Cup Super League pool stage comes to an end. They'll have to get South Africa to play in England. I don't know how it would work exactly, but the, the point here is is that it's sad for South Africa because, as we've talked about on the show recently, they're skint and they've got board problems and all is not well down there. And to have England go home and the sense that it's been a known goal, I mean, we won't know for a while the extent to which that's true, whether it's like how the bubble got penetrated in the first place. We, we don't know the answers yet, but the very fact that there are questions to be asked will mean that the reputational damage will, will be on CSA, which might affect who visits there in the next few months in a summer that's really important for them. I think the, the answers really are, are that you're in a country that's had, at present, I think 800,000-plus COVID cases mm. there top 20 in the world for for cases detected i mean england's obviously got a huge the uk has a huge number of cases as well and and has had historically but at probably at the point that cricket season was at its peak in august and september that was when they'd managed to contain things to some degree before Mm. it really started to rage again so maybe that was partly luck with that timing but it's raging in south africa and and i i don't really see how you could expect to be able to run 
a series or a tournament and expect it to actually be secure, you know, unless you're entirely staffing it with people who've who've already been infected and, and are immune. We, we've got the prospect of a, a vaccine in the future in, you know, which might be available by February or March. And so maybe that's a way that Australia could tour is if all of the players are vaccinated ahead of time. But I, I can't see how an Australian tour could go ahead otherwise because there's no way that South Africa can make they, – they can promise all they want, but they can't actually make that promise. There's nothing to base that promise on that they will be able to have a secure enough setup because it, it, it requires so many people. You need you need that many people to provide transport, provide food, logistics, accommodation, um, run cricket grounds, all the rest of it. You can't do it without a cast of at least hundreds and there's really no way to make sure that all of those people are going to be secure from the chance of infection. Yeah, that's right. I think because Australia had such a good experience in England um, in the bubble and, you know, the England bubble went off without a hitch and has been celebrated accordingly, um, had England gone to South Africa and it had a gone smoothly, I suppose there would have been the inclination to have discharged their, their responsibilities uh, with WTC points on the line and all the rest of it. But, yeah, I think what you're saying largely tallies, doesn't it, that if there's no way to vaccinate everybody who will be involved in that series in February and March, so I think they're meant to start playing in the middle of February, three test matches in and out. But, yeah, in the absence of, of the players being vaccinated on both sides, and not just the players, the point you make, it's such a big web to put on an international test series, as we as we know, and as we saw this summer in England, I think at any stage, up to three hundred and fifty people were involved, or something like that. It was it was up towards five hundred. It isn't just as straightforward as having you know twenty two blokes get a jab. You know what I mean? So, a bit of a watch this space there. The only good news, I suppose, uh, from again an Australian perspective, is that the fact that they weren't confirmed as positive tests in the England camp means that they can leave the country and what that means is that the five players who are slated to come to the Big Bash can still come. Had they been a close contact of, a, of an infected party member, to use your jargon from before, they may have been stuck in South Africa for an extra 10 days and that would have made it very hard for them to have arrived in Australia and done their two weeks in hotel quarantine before playing in the Big Bash after Christmas, which is the plan for David Milan, Jason Roy, Sam Billings, Liam Livingston and Lewis Gregory. So they're all in, in good shape for that. I note during the week that three extra players who would have been coming to the Big Bash are no longer uh, making that journey. So Tom Curran and Tom Banton have both put their hand up and said they, they aren't up for it for the reasons that we've talked about um, pretty consistently on the show about what the bubble takes out of players. I mean, they, they've both said that they, they aren't up for another bubble right now and, and fair enough to them for putting their hand up. And, and Johnny Bairstow uh, has been picked for the Sri Lanka Test Squad. So the assumption was that he wouldn't be in England's Red Bull plans um, over the winter. Thus, he, he agreed to play uh, in the BBL. Well, now he's back in favour and he'll be at the very least in the squad and, and maybe indeed back into the England Test team by the time they get to Sri Lanka just after Christmas. No more bubbles. If, if you were down the creek at lunchtime at Eltham High School and you said you went up for another bubble, people would say <laughs> you were soft. You know? <laughs> like, how, how else are you supposed to get through geography? How are you going to keep your loads up if you can't keep your lung capacity up? <laughs> Um, so, you know, YJB has, um, I suppose it's important for him that he's fought his way back into a test squad. He's um, he's had a, a mixed sort of romance mm. with the English test team over the last oof, 
I, I guess, year um, that, that things have been a little bit rocky in that department since he was a feature in the 2019 Ashes. But it, it does diminish somewhat the, the talk of, you know, the English influx. So it was going to be the English Big Bash, but now it's mm. sort of five-eighths of the English Big Bash <laughs> um, with with the, the players that you mentioned missing out and, and Tom Banton particularly, one who's excited a lot of people down under, um, although we probably haven't seen his absolute best, but there was the chance that might have happened this year. There's also the note that uh, David Milan, the Bradman of T20 cricket, as he's known, has become the highest ranked T20 international batsman ever. When you look at the all-time historical rankings for Test cricket, uh, Braddles is is retrospectively the highest ever, and, and so mm. David Milan has has that uh, that privilege, that pleasure, that uh, whatever you call it. Uh, that honour in T20 cricket. Yeah, I I tweeted this as soon as the press release came out. I'm like, well, we've got Bradman in Test cricket. We've got Viv Richards in One Day Internationals and Mm -hmm. David Milan in the shortest form of the game. And look, good on him. I mean, good on him for being a player who, at different points through the English summer, was no lock to even get in the national team. But due to his incredible record when he does get picked, I think it's... Has he he passed 50 10 times out of 17 attempts? Something like that. And that unbeaten 99 to wrap up the series 3-0 against South Africa before COVID took over. Um, yeah, fair play to the guy. Um, he, he gets a lot of criticism for being a slow starter. I think we, I think I, I fell into that trap last week of saying that you want Milan in the side in, in a scrap. You don't necessarily want him on a flat track. And then he blasts 99 not out in about 40 balls, which certainly was a flat track. So mm. it, it was inevitable that would happen after I made that declaration. But still, that, that theme about him being not the player to to use in, in those uh, more true circumstances uh, is kind of out the window there as well. And I think he's got 914 ranking points for what little that's worth. And, yeah, that puts him at top of all comers in the history of uh, 2020 international cricket. Fair play. Yeah, Bradman was mid, mid-900s for for the test rankings. So, you know, if, if you're up there in that 900 range, you're going pretty well. Uh, Kane Williamson, a player who has gone pretty well in the last week. We've had his previous highest score come up a few times in Nerd Pledge, which yes. was 242, not out. I suspect we might be seeing a few $2.51s coming through in, in weeks and months to come because he's got a new high score. He's into the uh, better than Tendulkar club in terms of players who've made 250-plus scores, which uh, Sachin strangely never did. 251 against the West Indies and uh, batted for a very long time on one of those one of those fake green mambas that you and I know so well where <laughs> everybody online loses their absolute minds over a picture from New Zealand of a, a pitch that's indistinguishable from the outfield next to it. It's just green grass. But they're always flatties. They always get 550 on them. It's always camouflage grass. It's not even real grass. They just paint the flat track green and people get pumped. But then Kane makes 250 and, and New Zealand win by an innings. Yeah, they just know how to bat, don't they, in those, in those conditions, as you would, given it's their, their home country. I, I was... Uh paying attention to Williamson's innings on the second day when he just batted superbly. I mean, it was a different kind of Williamson, the way he was batting so forcefully, but he nearly got out on 2-2-1. So he was given out, caught behind, he edged Peter Roach, I think it was. Well, yeah, Peter Siddle, but a number of other final word favourites as well. 2-2-1 is a, a number which we've had come up on the show so many times because Gavaska made it, Lara made it, Ponting made it, Sangakara made it and Rob Key made it. I know Rob Key may not quite group with the other four there, but it was very He's close only, to being... only 100. 
Well, he's only 100. It's very close to being a, you know, a fairly decent collection of players there. Kavaska, Lara, Ponting, Sangakara, many, many records Key. they've broken. And then Key, who, yes, yeah, he's only test 100 being a 2-2-1 is of note as well. But yeah, Williamson was caught behind and retrospectively uh, recalled due to the excellent application of that technology by the third umpire. And that was in the same over where he'd twatted the six onto the big bank there at Seddon Park, a, a ground that we both love, Jeff, and then struck a glorious on drive and, and was out the ball after that. But yeah, New Zealand thumped them in the end, didn't they? Uh, the West Indies batted abysmally uh, in the first innings. They lost, I think they lost eight of their ten wickets in the space of a session. They were all out for 138 on the third day. They followed on. They made 247 the second time around, but they still lost by an innings and 134 runs. Uh, Jermaine Blackwood made a good counter-attacking 100, 104 off 141 balls. He had support from Alzari Joseph. At one point when they came together, it was 89 for six, and it looked like they were going to lose by an innings and squillions, but the, the that pair put on 150 plus and Blackwood had enough time to reach three figures the second time he's done so in 2020 but still a, a comprehensive win for New Zealand Southie, Bolt, Jamison and Wagner the uh, the four-way pace attack did the job. Uh, before we have our mid-innings break I think it's time for a little game that we like to call Nerd Pledge. Nerd Pledge. It's a game. We play it with people on our patron page. They uh, wholeheartedly and kindly support the show, help us make this show by sending us little little donations, uh, little, little extras. Sometimes they're big extras. It depends on the people, depends what they can do. But that donation might not be a normal number. It might be a very specific number. And the very specific number might have something to do with cricket. In fact, it will, because if it might, then they're not playing this game. And we, we are the people who have to work out what the number is. So from among our audience, which recently in the last couple of weeks, we went past the one and a half million downloads mark, bang, released the streamers, confetti. Among those one and a half million downloads are people who say, hmm, I have a number and I want to see if these fellows can work out what it is. One of them was Danny McGee. Danny McGee very generously sent through $19.17, Uh, And he also sent through a clue, which you don't have to do, but you can if you want. And he said, my nerd pledge is in homage to my mate Les Hall, uh, not to be confused with Wes Hall, and his favourite cricket stat. Les Hall, not Wes Hall, is English, if that helps. So 1917, it could be the year, it could be the title of the Sam Mendes film about the First World War, but it's more likely something to do with cricket. If I submitted to you, Adam, 1917, what might that make you think in terms of the game of bat and ball? All right, I got something for you, Danny McGee, for 1917. It was something originally found by Brath Servi on Crick Info, but I think it'll work. So, Stuart Broad averages 19.17 in the fourth test match of any series that he's played. So, of course, that captures the, the famous spell that he bowled at Durham in 2015 that you were there for, Jeff, and the, mm-hmm. the spell at Nottingham in 2000... And, no, it would have been Durham 2013 and Nottingham yes. 2015, which I was there for, the all-out 60 when he picked up eight for 15. Um, per this piece on Crick Info, he doesn't average less than 27 in any other matches, but in the fourth test of a series, 
19.17. So he's got five five-wicket hauls in that test when, when it goes to the, the journey. So I suppose from Broad's perspective, he wants to see a series stretch out longer rather than these three-game rubbers. But, hey, it, it works for me. It's also the, the, the test in the series where he made his test century, his 169 back in 2010. And that all happened when playing nice. in the fourth test of a series, 19.17, his bowling average within. So his best... Bowling and his best batting both came in the fourth test match yeah. of the series. I think it's quite cute. Huh. I like that. Okay. So 19.17, I like it. Danny McGee, that works for me. Uh, let us know. If, if we need to get closer to that, you can nudge us in that direction with another clue, and we'll address that on Storytime, which is our extended Nerd Pledge show on the weekend where we go deep into the wilds of cricket history. Our second number, it's a double header, meaning two different people sent the number in. Normally, we bring them together, double headers, even if they're separated by the span of time. This number was $2.67, but this double header was was unique in that it was our first ever chronological double header in that these two numbers came in back to back on the list they didn't have to be moved on the list <laughs> but they were sitting together 267 and that that gives me a strong indication as to what it referred to because they both came in at the very end of August this year on the same day which would suggest to me, uh, given they both came in just after Zach Crawley made a breakthrough <laughs> innings of 267 in a test match, that that is what they would refer to. Zach Crawley up with Kane Williamson in the 250-plus club, the better-than-Tendulkar club because Tendulkar never made a test 250. Highest he got was, what was it, 242? Where's your 250, Sachin? Happy birthday to your 250. It doesn't exist. Zach Crawley, 267. Um, you you watched a fair bit of that innings, Adam. You were pretty invested in that. I was. And just, so just establishing that Zach Crawley is a better cricketer than Sachin Tendulkar, is that what you're asserting, Jeff? Well, that's what the numbers suggest. You know, you can't argue <laughs> with numbers. They're, um, they're, uh, there's no room for interpretation or nuance when it comes to numbers. A bigger number is better, and thus a person who gets a bigger number must be a better player. It's just logic. Having played that game myself on Twitter in the past, I know how brutal that can get. I, I once declared that Chris Wokes was a better cricketer than Sachin Tendulkar on the basis of some statistical column. I don't, I don't remember what I was basing it on. It was like a series stat or, or something like that. I was still receiving replies in my mentions on Twitter about this 18 months later from people furious that how dare I make such an assertion. But on this one, well, as you say, it's irrefutable. 267 for Zach Crawley. Uh, I'm sure it'll be, as everybody said at the time, the first of many Test 100s. And, yeah, looking forward to seeing him play down here next year as well. Either that or he'll be Rob Key and that'll be his only Test 100. True. That's it. <laughs> Head on home. You've done it. You've notched the doublet. You're on your way. So in terms of time, you know, often we'll wander more widely to find a number, but for Samuel Nemza and Alex Capel, two six seven. It's Zach Crawley, the guy who you know, while playing Test cricket in that floppy bucket hat, always just looked to me like he just wandered out from Glastonbury somewhere and was <laughs> was about to ask if you if you knew where to pick up a bag um, or where a phone booth was. But um, but he was having a good time. So that is Nerd Pledge, the quick edition on the weekly show. We do the long edition on the weekends. If you want to play, send us a number. Go to patreon.com slash the final word and you'll find us there. And you can send us a number, get on the list, get amongst the show and be part of the fun. My expectation is that if you're listening to the weekly show, you're probably now listening to the weekend show and know what it's all about. I, I listen back to our weekend show, uh, Jeff, on Sunday or Monday or something like that. It sounds really good. For what started off as a, a, a quite 
odd idea that we'll just talk about numbers for an hour and see how it goes. I'm, I'm really proud of what we're doing there. So if you haven't migrated over to Storytime, please do so. Uh, you can hear each week, it comes with it at the moment, a calling the shots interview last week. Uh, we rolled out the Andy Zaltzman interview for the first time. We've got plenty more where that comes from. So yes, there's always the weekly show, but the weekend show is gathering steam week by week. I would also like to send out a final word, congratulations to our listener, friend of the show, Sarah Berman, who made her first class debut this week, not on the field, but scoring the Australia A versus the Indians match. Um, the, the Indian touring party made it known they did not want to be referred to as India A, they were the Indians, as per sort of more old-fashioned touring terminology. Where we, We've seen Australia players, the Australians, before. I remember Shane Watson making 100 for the Australians before the 05 Ashes in the touring party, for instance. Oh, absolutely. I completely agree with that. If you're a touring team, you are the Indians. I mean, last year when Australia played their tour games at Worcester and Jeff, where was the other one? Did they play another one? Oh, yeah, they played one at Derby. Derby, Derby, that's right. Worcester and Derby, they were playing as the Australians, whereas when the Australia A team were in England ahead of that... It was Australia, right? I think that, that's perfectly fine. And also picked up in relation to that by Adam Morehouse, who runs the ACT Cricket Stats Twitter handles, one of my favourites, is that Sarah is only the second known North Sydney scorer to reach first-class level after Jim Young did so in the early 20th century. So uh, wow. another nice little... He's not young anymore, Jim <laughs> No, he's not. So well done, Sarah. Uh, staying in Sydney, the inaugural Jim Maxwell plate was played for uh, yesterday. Jim sent me a okay. message earlier today to bring this to my attention, but between his beloved Easts, or I think he's the he's the president at East, isn't he? In the in the Sydney Grade cricket competition against the primary club, where I think he's also the the chairman or the president or, or something like that. It's literally a plate, but as he pointed out, it's a trophy where you can put a glass or a bottle on it. So that that looks uh, uh, appropriate for Jim. Easts beat the primary club by seventy five runs, and yeah, the primary club aren't too different from the, the Lords Taverners, who of course we work with here on the Final Word. They um, do a lot of great work uh, for those with disabilities in sport, and they fundraised by fining players each time they make ducks or golden ducks and and Jim loves mentioning that whenever he's um, calling a test match on the ABC when an Australian player gets out first ball that'll swell the coffers of the primary club so uh, uh, that's that's a, a nice thing this weekend for Jim all the members have to cough up yeah every time there's there's a golden so so it's another donation for the primary club says Jim I wonder <laughs> if they were getting stung for the WBBL because I noticed there were a lot of golden ducks this year the first game had a like three or four in, in, in the first game of the season and, you know, Elise Villani, Rachel Priest among them on that first morning and they just kept going from there. They were I, I didn't do the final tally but I was keeping track of it throughout. So, well done Jim, to have the Jim Maxwell plate uh, being inaugurated as a match. And as we go into the break, uh, Adam would like to feature a little bit of music from a new album from our patron Andrew Tuttle, uh, also known as Tuts Corp on the internet, who's, who's written an album, an instrumental album, centred around Alexandra Hills, the outer suburb where he grew up, grew up and the idea of coming back to it as an adult uh, album's available on Bandcamp and other streaming services. So what have you got for us, Adam? Yeah, this is a really nice part of my weekend and I thought I would sort of share it with everybody else. So Andrew's kindly sent a copy of this album to both Jeff and I and um, I, I played it uh, while we're here in quarantine and it's the most peaceful, beautiful music. He said that it's it's lovely to write to and I, I thought that, that really hit the spot. So as we work our way into our break and then into our conversation about Jeff's book, uh, this is a piece of music called Hilliard Creek, Finnecane Road. 
Jeff, it feels like an odd thing to say given I'm behind a door for 14 days, but let's get rugged, let's get wild, let's talk about the Zolio. It's the Zolio. Oh, 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 it's uh, the magic box that lets you text people from anywhere in the world. Doesn't matter where you are. Doesn't matter if there's mobile reception. Doesn't matter if, well, I mean, you do need to have a phone. But if your phone can't connect to normal phone towers, if you're on a raft in the middle of the ocean with the Thor Heyerdahl expedition trying to float to Tahiti, if you're on a mountain, if you're going kayaking, if you're just in one of those inexplicable dead zones in, in the middle of you know certain cricket grounds and so on where you just can't get any reception because there are too many people there and and the system's overloaded, you pull out the Zolio little box in your pocket, it connects to the Iridium network of satellites 16,000 kilometres up in the sky circling the Earth and it will bounce your text message or email to any phone number or email address anywhere in the world from anywhere in the world all the time, every time, can't stop, won't stop. So 16 kilometres, did you say, how high up in the air? 16,000 like, kilometres. Right, I was going to say 16 cases, this is 15 minutes on the M1, isn't it? But no, 16, mm. that's, a, that's a lot further, 16,000 kilometres. Yes. That, 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 that's it's 16, almost 1,000 times further. That's 16,000 minutes on the M1 before we get to the, <laughs> get to the satellites. Okay, I'll recalibrate my uh, uh, thinking. Uh, so the... the um, yeah, sixteen k's in the sky wouldn't even be where. A, a, is that thirty thousand feet? It's about. It's about where a plane would be. They'd, they'd be running into the, into the satellites if that were the case. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like the atmosphere's not that far up. If you think about, say, Mount Everest is what eight thousand meters, so eight eight k's mm. above sea level. I, I think once you get up to about. 20 you're probably almost in space like it's really close <laughs> space is really close compared to anything that's on a flat distance <laughs> away from you if, if you were like you, i can get to space in the same amount of meterage as it would take me to to get to say you know kensington like kennington you know, like maybe just across <laughs> the river it's that's where space starts which is a bit weird but it's just there it's just above our heads um maybe it's like 70 k's up I, I can't remember maybe i think it's like 70 but it's 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 not far yeah i, I want to know send us a message when does space formally start? We can add that to the, the knowledge bank. It's closer than Geelong. It, yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> Geelong. Melbourne to Geelong is further than space. <laughs> I, I, I was thinking about, uh, as we were leading into this, that um, there are a lot of people in the UK who've been let out of lockdown. It's kind of a lockdown interregnum of sorts because we know that the UK will be back in lockdown again soon. There's going to be this tiered system through December. There'll be the, the Christmas off the hook, everybody gets infected bit, then uh, with their families, mm. which will be fatal and horrible. But I guess a, a, at least a structured system to something that was going to happen anyway. Uh, and then we'll go back into lockdown again, you know, in February and March until the vaccine's completely rolled out. That means your window to get out there in the great outdoors, even though it's pretty cold, is now. If you're a hiker, if you're a climber, if you're a whatever, this is going to be the moment. And you don't want to be you don't want to be doing it without a Zolio or some kind of device to, to talk to the, the broader world in, in the cold conditions. So this is a, a timely moment to be discussing the Zolio. And there are a couple of things you can do with it. You can send a message to your friend, relative, loved one and say, looking at a nice sunset thinking of you, a winky emoji. Or you can be like, I just fell down a crevasse and my leg is shattered and you can just press the red SOS button and it will send a message to an SOS triage centre that will be like, this person is in trouble and it will send your exact fine detailed GPS coordinates to them so that they can arrange for you to be extracted. It's, it's dual utility. And uh, the other little extra at the moment is that 
Zolio have a promotion until Christmas Eve, giving away a free portable power bank valued at 50 bucks Australian to new customers who purchase a Zolio. So you can get it, you can keep it charged up. The battery lasts for like 12 days or something anyway, as it is. And then you can get this power bank to recharge it if you're going on a long trip or to charge your other devices. So check it out, Z-O-L-E-O.com, Zolio.com. That's it. That's the website. Go to it if you want one. That's how it works. Hi, I'm Matt Renshaw, and you're listening to the Final Word podcast. This is the Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. I'm back in the pilot seat because we're talking about Jeff's new book, The Comeback Summer. In the first attempt to intro in this, I called. It, I said it was it's the Redemption Summer, and Jeff, it's it's not called the Redemption Summer. However. That is the theme of the book. You're talking about the redemption arc Mm. uh, of the stories that we were telling last year throughout what was really a glorious uh, 2019 in in so many ways. And we've talked about contrast between 2019 and 2020. And going back and and reading the book over the last couple of days, that's how I felt. It's been a reminder of what a glorious time we had. Yeah, and and that was really it. That was the initial motivation. So it is is about redemption narratives and sort of on on mass like you know draw back and take the macro view because we we knew before it even started that that would be every every media angle for the whole summer would be the redemption stories for mm. smith warner stokes and, and whether they redeemed themselves or didn't but that wasn't actually the thing that made me want to write the book the thing that made me want to write the book was what we experienced during that summer we're just day after day after day we saw extraordinary things and it was so exhilarating and so exciting and so this feeling that we'd made a really great decision to be doing what we were doing because Mm. we were there for all of it you know that that none of it none of it was 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 hidden from us we we were able to be part of all of that and and experience all of that firsthand and it was just that excitement of i want to be able to share with people what it felt like to be there and to remind people to give them more detail rather than just the short news reports or the highlights clips but to to say really really immerse yourself in the feeling of what that day was like yeah, and, and I think that's the the secret source of this book because if you are writing about the 2019 English summer, well, frankly, that's kind of been done. I mean, there's been a lot of different uh, books and anthologies and, you know, reflections and first-person reflections even with the players who are involved, but you needed this sort of perspective, I suppose, would you say, in order to kind of capture it in its fullest and also have that personal story running through it too? I guess I approached it as because I knew that I knew during that summer that I would be writing a book. I knew that it wasn't going to be ready to come out at the end of 2019. And so, and I knew that the way things work in Australia, if you're releasing a cricket book, your publisher will say, we're not releasing it any time other than between the months of October and December. You know, it has to come out as cricket season starts. There's, there's no point publishing it at a different time. So I knew even at the time that I'm going to be a long way behind in terms of you know, the the currency of this. So it's not about the immediacy of saying, oh, I've got a scoop about the news, about what happened behind the scenes or whatever it is. This was just this was more like a personal appreciation of the games that we saw. And, and it was me saying, well, you might have read other people writing about it, but I'm going to tell you about it in a in my own way, which which I think is different enough that for anyone who enjoyed that summer, it'll be worth them 
enjoying it in this different way. You know, they can sit down with me and I can tell them the story in, in, in a way that's distinctive. And so that was really my first aim with the book was just to do that, just to tell those stories in that way. And then the other parts, the broader sort of thematic elements to the book came in later and came in afterwards as in this will be a good addition that can balance it out but but the key thing was I want to tell you a story. Yeah early on it feels a little bit like a sequel to your first book as far as where you needed to pick up the threads from Steve Smith's Men and what happened in Newlands because when you sort of hit send on that manuscripts in well I suppose it would have been the August of 2018 that was before the complete complete totality of the carnage was apparent I mean we didn't quite know how severe the fallout would be at Jollymont or indeed within the Australian cricket team throughout the course of uh, the back of 2018 and 2019 when they're pumped by India. It's as though you needed to finish that story before you could go on and tell the next one. Yeah, that was grounding for, for what was going to happen next because, as you said, the cultural review hadn't come in, the the sackings and resignations at Cricket Australia administratively hadn't taken place, the, the periods of Australia being smashed around on the field while their best players were suspended hadn't happened, you know, aside from that um, one-day series in England, which was a relatively minor sort of engagement in terms of people paying attention to it in Australia. So there is that. There is some catching up at the start, but there's also some... Some scene setting, I guess, some frame of reference uh, that that's saying these are the kind of ideas we're going to be talking about in this book. And there was also, you know, the the other part of the the book that I wanted to include was a bit of personal stuff about what it was like behind the scenes covering that summer because I imagine that a lot of people who listen to this show or, or who read our writing would have an envy of being able to be on the road going to all the matches, having being able to take the time, you know, I'm going to go to England for five months and watch cricket. That's not something that most people are able to do. And so there would be this fascination with it if you're not, that's not the life that you're living. And so I wanted to give some some insight into that to say this is what it's actually like you know not to not to say here's the raw gritty reality because it's not glamorous and whatever I mean it's not glamorous but but just to say this is this is what life is actually like when you're doing it and I thought that that might be interesting to people so there's some of our story in there as well as the the bigger cricket story there's there's the game and then there are the people the watchers of it who are us yeah, I must admit, when I read the chapter that was titled Final Word on Tour, which kind of goes through that in, in, in a fair bit of detail, I almost felt like, this will sound weird, but jealous of my own experience. I mean, <laughs> as far as I'm like, oh, wow, wouldn't that be an amazing thing to do? And, and realising that when you're in the middle of it, when it's all swirling around you, mm. I, don't, I really don't think you appreciate it. And I, the same can be said for when I was working in, in Canberra and in the hustle and bustle of federal politics. I don't think I always appreciated what was going on around me. I was just focused on the next thing, the next deadline, whatever it Mm. was. And to an extent, the same applied to last year. I think had we had a conversation about this in, you know, the end of September or October, we would have known it was a big thing, but we wouldn't have realised just how amazing it was and how special it was. And it's taken this distance away and maybe COVID feeds into this, but that chapter especially, I mean, even the way that you write about Rachel and me finding out that that Rachel was pregnant with Winnie like I was quite emotional reading that back because you know I remember what happened I told you what happened and the way you conveyed that it's just a it's it's a lovely exercise uh, having experienced the the terrible 2020 knowing this this other reality is there and we have had it before and, and hopefully we'll have it again and part of what I remember being aware of at the time was 
particularly within the games, watching moments and realising that this is going to be a moment that people think about and talk about for a long, long time to come. I think the I think the first time that happened was in 2013 when I was watching Mitchell Johnson take England apart at the Adelaide Oval and and Phil Walker, the, the Wisdom Cricket Monthly editor, said to me, you, you know, you realise we're watching one of the great Ashes spells after he'd taken the fourth wicket, I think. And... And and there was that you know I did have that moment of realization that this is you know mm. this goes on the list with Frank Tyson and John Snow and and Lillian Thompson and that that in in a really small way we're part of that and there were a lot of those moments in 2019 watching Archer at Lords watching Smith at Edgbaston and and being aware at the time uh, and saying that this is going to be. A historical moment this is going to be remembered and it's happened right now it's happening right in front of us right now and so that part was something that I, I tried to convey as well that that sense of the, the future history the future mythology that will surround a moment that's happening in front of you, uh, you know, and that you're aware of it happening in front of you as you watch yeah and there's no guarantee of it either I mean just because there was a world cup followed by an ashes doesn't inherently mean there are going to be those once in a generation moments and I mean again going through the book there were so many of them and to an extent I think we knew the Jofra Archer Steve Smith night I know we talked about it on the daily pod the day at Headingley the World Cup final the World Cup semi-final at Manchester we knew they were they were big things but again I guess it's the benefit of hindsight isn't it and sort of seeing them in context of the entire summer I mean it, it's it's fortunate that your publisher was keen for you to write about this ahead of time so you were already kind of cataloguing what was going on. Yeah, I did have that in, in my head that even as I was writing pieces for the ABC or The Guardian, I was, I was thinking... I, I had that kind of framework in my head that this is okay. This is this is a chapter, you know. This is significant, and and you did reference that with with Archer and Smith at Lord saying you know, this this is something that we will think about and talk about and be asked about for for as long as we live. You know, mm. this will keep coming up. It, it's quite. It's quite an extraordinary feeling to have that about a single moment, about a single, you know, a, a, a half-hour stint of cricket that you happen to have watched mm. in a year in which you've watched so many, you know, literally hundreds and hundreds of other hours of cricket and other years in which you'll watch just as much. And, and it could have been ordinary, you know. It could have been an ordinary World Cup and nothing that exciting happened and there were some one-sided games and, you know, one team made 280 in the final and bowled the others out for 170 and, and the Ashes were... You know, whoever won, won, and it wasn't hugely significant in terms of how it happened. But it, it was never about the results. It was about it was about what went on on the field. You know, Stokes could have been given out LB with two runs to get, and that Test match would have been just as good. It, yeah, it, it, yeah, it didn't matter. The result didn't matter. That's um, right. And and the fact that it ended up two all didn't matter. That it, I mean, that was kind of anticlimactic. That the last Test was not an epic. But it was also sort of the only test that wasn't an epic in its own way. Yeah, it could have been the 2007 Cricket World Cup and the 2001 Ashes, which in both cases weren't mm. overly remarkable or necessarily bookworthy, although I'm sure Steve Wall would have made plenty of money out of his tour diary from that particular <laughs> Ashes. Uh, the, um, but it's not just, like, I guess it's worth noting that it's not just a reflective piece. It isn't a... It isn't 22 essays of Jeff Lemon sort of being Jeff Lemon either. I mean, there's some real boot leather work in there too as far as you going back through the court documents from the Ben Stokes embargo, Farago, and I mean, I know that would have been hard graft, going back and really capturing everything that happened. And I must say, I mean, I was 
doing a fair bit of pundit work through through that trial. I was following it very closely, but nowhere near as in depth as the the, the extent that you were able to. And um, over what would have must have been several thousand words, it was a very long chapter, uh, making sure that there was a, def- a definitive account in a book of what happened in that trial. That was that. That was the the one particular chapter where I really got the research out, um, because you know a fair bit of it was reflection and and was was based on note taking I was doing at the time. But that was that was something where I felt I have to get this absolutely right and I have to get every detail of it. So I did you know read through the entire court transcript over and over and and did did a lot of research on it. Um, so yeah, it, 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 I, I suppose it does stand out in that regard and it, it is a significant chapter but that was exactly my aim was that so much of the coverage I'd read of the Stokes story was very partial and that was that was partly because before the trial anyone writing within the UK was limited in what they could say because they, mm. they couldn't be seen to prejudice the trial but afterwards it was it seemed that because it had taken so long to come to trial there was no appetite anymore to actually do the work on it after that. They were just, media-wise outlets were just relieved it was over and they could get back to saying, you know, gosh, isn't he good at cricket? And that really gave me the shits, to be honest, because there was, it was, it was such a simplistic way of looking at, at the Ben Stokes chapter to say, well, he got found not guilty in court of, of a charge, therefore everything's fine, you know, therefore he didn't do anything wrong. And a big part of what I've tried to look at in that and, and in the closing essay in the book as well and, and a couple of other places is when you're talking about athletes as public figures who are who are sinning against society in some way, you know, whether it's whether it's the kind of on-field cheating or whether it's the, the off-field disasters that some people get themselves into, it's it's not necessarily more significant than anybody else doing something wrong except that they have a public profile so that does make it significant but the way that the way that we as as a as a media sort of on mass or the way that we as a society who want to watch these sports treat it is that we want it to be simple we want the answer to be simple so that we can go back to liking what the player is doing without feeling any sort of conflict about it and it seemed like that's what was going on in the Stokes case that it's all good not guilty uh, dust our hands off and never think of it again and I thought that was unreasonable that there's there is a lot more nuance to it and there is culpability on on his part which he's never come to grips with publicly and and hasn't hasn't had to and probably won't have to and we'll probably get a knighthood and everybody will go on as though it never happened but it did happen and the detail of that's important yeah yeah i think that's right about um 2018 it was the middle of a test series when the trial was on he missed the lord's test if i recall correctly and there was an appetite to sort of get on with it as cricket reporters and 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 yeah a lot of that a lot of that extra detail is is born out in the book and yeah there's an intersection between what you're saying there and I suppose what you could call the, the principal conceit of the book, isn't there, about redemption arcs. And, you know, you've, you've released the essay. It was an extract as well in The Guardian about the redemption myth, as you put it. But that, that's a theme you return to time and again. It's such a fascinating idea to, to me that, that we're so... That as humans, we're, we find the redemption story so compelling and that it's, it's such an intrinsic part of almost every way that we tell stories it's there in in every genre it's there across the span of history that the the story of a of of a protagonist who rises to some sort of height falls to some sort of depth and then rises again is is so attractive to us and that's pretty much how 
a story is is developed that's the structure of a story is that if if a character doesn't go through dramatic change then people say well what was the point of that story what's the point of a book that's just about you know somebody sitting by the river enjoying a nice afternoon tea um, and then doing it again the next day and the day after that something has drama has to happen change has to happen in order for there to be a reason to tell the story and if it doesn't happen the story is not appealing to us so that you know I, I think that that would come up again and again in, in things that you've written and things that I've written is that it's always about the progress, the evolution, the change through the story. And in charting that story for your three main characters, so Stokes, Warner, Smith, perhaps dealing with the latter two there, I know when you were writing the first book, the way your feelings evolved when focusing so much on Smith and Warner and to an extent Bancroft, but the first book was so much about Steve Smith and David Warner, you evolved as a writer and the way you saw them in the process did, did you go through a similar thing this time where the way you felt about those two Australian band players from perhaps even the start of the Steve Smith uh, uh, Steve Smith's men book compared to the end of this second book how you've the, I guess your own journey as it relates to those two players I think I did that yeah it's an interesting question because because you you do come into a project with a certain idea but if you're willing to really test yourself out then then that idea will change. It, it, it will evolve, and I, I suppose I've always had a degree of empathy or sympathy, or, or you know, an attempt of understanding of David Warner, where other people have been less, <laughs> less willing to give him much latitude. And I, I did feel for him in terms of what happened in that English summer, where you know he, he was just about the top scorer in the World Cup came second by one run and but Australia didn't win the World Cup so it basically didn't count that was all sort of dismissed and then he had a shocker of a series in the ashes but the way that that was viewed as a as a moral failing that David Warner had not tried hard enough or he didn't want it enough he wasn't hungry enough whatever those kind of bullshit sporting cliches rather than he got out 10 times you know it happens it's cricket you can you can have a really bad series and and most players when it was being talked about as this is a historically bad series like no one has had that's because any other player would have got dropped and he was good enough he had been good enough historically that he didn't get dropped so the fact that he'd been so good actually hurt him because Mm. he didn't get to play three bad tests and get left out he had to play five bad tests and, and suffer through it and then you know Smith as well, I suppose, having to produce such an extraordinary performance and needing to be that good in order to get himself back into people's good books so comprehensively and and there's there's that interesting crossover with Cameron Bancroft as well, where he's I think he was talking in that um, that behind the scenes documentary where he's he's saying he's talking about Smith's game at Edgebaston and, and he's saying that's what I wanted I wanted I wanted to come out I wanted to make twin hundreds I wanted to silence the crowd I wanted to win the adoration and it didn't happen for him and now he's you know wherever he is kind of stranded in some position where he may never get another go at, at an international career and so there's there's a lot of sadness amongst the success I suppose there's there's the triumph but there's a completely unreasonable expectation that only a triumph that spectacular could be enough to be forgiven and to be allowed back it felt as though you really enjoyed going back to recreate some of those major set piece days 
it can be hard riding a match report, as it were. Um, I mean, I know we often do them for the Wisden Almanac. You're writing about a game that's happened a long time ago and you're trying to make it last the test of time, but you seem to enjoy that, that challenge of keeping it readable, even though everybody knew what happens. Everybody knows sort of, you know, the, the end point, mm. um, and including various devices, including, for example, the, the Guardian's live blog. I found that quite interesting, how you, you told the story of England's all-out what was it, all that 80-odd? 67. All that 67, I should know that number. But instead of using your own words, you use the correspondents, many of whom we, we talk to all the time on the email when doing the Guardian Live blog. Yeah, that, that was just sort of a little accidental idea that just popped up when I was, because I, I had a few of those quotes in, in my notes from a piece I'd written that day for the paper, I think. And, and I thought, hang on, this is great. So I, and, and I went back through my emails and there were so many. And I thought, you, yeah, you can tell the whole story of the collapse from, you know, optimistic start to the day, everybody saying, oh, this was a good day for batting because the sun's out and, you know, <laughs> yesterday was cloudy and so on. And then the way it all unravels over the course of, you know, two hours and, and a handful of overs after lunch. And there was some deeply funny correspondence in there as well because, you know, nobody's as amusing as the English when they're feeling depressed and, and you know, then the odd Australian sort of just brashly hopping in there with, you know, with with the bugle sounding and, and having a great old time so yeah that, that was a that wasn't something I'd planned but it it's I sort of stumbled into it when I was starting to write that chapter and, and definitely enjoyed being able to, to use that device and find a different way into it you could have also noted that when we left I think it I think that was the night the morning after the night before where we'd been at Mojo's till about half past four in the morning dancing on the bar as well and we'd rolled into <laughs> We rolled into heading. I mean, we didn't get many chances for that. As you say in the book, we pretty much didn't drink for three, four, five months. I mean, occasionally might mm. have a couple of beers, but we were pretty well behaved because we had no capacity to be out socialising yeah. the way we ordinarily would on a tour because we just had so much on. Yeah, it would be, okay, you, you get back to your accommodation at midnight absolutely drained and you know you've got to be up in seven hours to go and do the next thing so and those yahoo shows i mean the yahoo shows you you detail that every sunday we had to find a way back to london no matter where we were in order to wake yeah. up at six o'clock to get to yahoo to record that segment each monday morning i mean i, I still can't quite believe we we sounded mm. semi-coherent on those videos i can still feel the pain of that wake-up call that that alarm going it was just like <laughs> god do i do i have to but yeah somehow you get in the shower you eat a croissant they turn the lights on and you're like all right we're doing a tv show and you just self-preservation <laughs> i suppose you you channel some some adrenaline burst for half an hour and get through it and i think looking back i wouldn't change any of it i'm, I'm glad that we got to have as many opportunities as we did and we've had plenty of more social tours and that wasn't one but it was also the the tour in which we got to do something lasting and, and produce a, a body of work across every possible media that, that we could that that means that we could tell that story. Another tour which you took some time to explain in, in great depth, uh, uh, going all the way back to Davies Street, uh, your house in Brunswick, where we spent so much time in the early days of White Line Wireless, was how it all came together in the UAE in 2018, which was an important point to explain uh, that tour after the players were banned, but also, you know, our fairly crazy adventure over there. Again, it's just reading back through it. it it's not that, I mean, I, I know the story inside out. We were there, of course, but it's, it's nice to have the capacity to sort of spend some time, you know, 10,000 words or whatever it is, having that there forever. This is how this thing happened. And here are the funny parts along the way. And I really enjoyed being able to do that. And I did, you know, it did occur to me that maybe it's self-indulgent to have two or three chapters in the book where it's it's mostly about me and you and, and what we were doing. But I did decide on balance. I thought that this that 
that being able to know the story of the person telling you the story gives you extra context to understand the rest of the stories you're being told and that that's important and also that it was entertaining. I did have conversations with my editor who was saying like, do you think you need this chapter? And I was like, I don't need it, but it's like putting a third slice of cheese in the cheeseburger. Like, I I don't need it, but it's going to be good. (laughs) You know, it's going to be entertaining. And and it's interesting that even though it's early days and the book's only out a few days ago, I've had a lot of the correspondence I've had has been around those couple of chapters. Oh, really? I really enjoyed hearing about the story of the... You know, one of the most epically scungy sharehouses, sort of long-term sharehouses that, mm. that lasted, you know, longer than any um, <laughs> gov- federal government its administration has since Howard. You know, <laughs> um, we probably outlasted Howard actually just a, just a bit. I reckon we pipped him, but it it, it was it was a story that I felt like. I'm going to get enough enjoyment out of telling it that it's going to be enjoyable to listen to. And and that was, you know, part of the overall story leading up to the World Cup and, and the Ashes as well was was, was you and me and, and radio commentary and our trajectory from, because that was part of our World Cup and Ashes story was yeah. being involved in the radio coverage that summer. And so it did need some lead up to say this is this is where it came from. This is how we got into it because it's not like we were sitting in a, a radio cadets intake in two thousand and four, you know, straight out of uni, and and that was our job. It, it's it's something that happened much later and almost by accident. Yeah, it's an unusual story and it's a fantastic one, as is the book as a whole. It's another mighty project. I know how much you poured into it through some really tough months for the world as well, which can't be discounted in all of this. It was a a rough time uh, through the middle of 2020, but you've came out the other end with an amazing piece of work. So congratulations to you for it. Uh, How do people get their hands on the comeback summer? It should be in pretty much any shop in Australia, I think, and a lot of them in the UK, um, if you can get to shops. But if you don't want to do that, um, it look. It won't be hard to find. You can punch it into Google if you if you want to. I'll I'll put a link in the show notes, which will which will be the the easiest link for Australian and UK listeners. That'll direct you to the relevant spot, and, and then you should be able to find online orders and uh, anywhere else in the world. You can use Book Depository because they tend to ship to countries that don't normally have shipping routes. So that's probably the best way. And I hope you enjoy it because I. I I had some fun writing it. I had some painful moments writing it too, but um, through that, as you said, through that winter, through that lockdown winter in Melbourne, it was in some ways really good to have a project that that meant that I didn't need to be thinking about doing other things at that time, even if it was, it was pretty hard graft while it felt like the world was ending outside. But there's a lot of fun and enjoyment in the book. So even though I may have been miserable when I was writing it, it'll be fun in the end. So that's what I hope you can take from it. Hi, I'm Natalie Jumanis, and you're listening to The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. This is The Final Word Cricket Podcast with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. Uh, thanks to Jeff Lemon for making time <laughs> for that interview and, and giving so generously of his time about his wonderful book, The Comeback Summer, which I believe is probably the best cricket book I've ever written. I mean, read, best cricket book I've ever read, at least this week. So, you know, make sure you grab a copy of it and get several copies. Several of our listeners have got several copies. Why not get them for Christmas? Get them for everybody you know. I mean, you might as well. You've got to buy people something it might as well be something that makes me happy as well as something that makes them happy we'll put a nice uh, prominent link in in the show notes you'll be able to click through and and buy uh, the comeback summer just in signing off i just wanted to thank everyone again who's been so ridiculously kind about 
my situation in the last week or so when flights were being cancelled left, right and centre and we were kind of going through that together on the podcast a couple of times a week and finally getting on that plane and yeah, people were lovely but especially those who have been in our final work community so thanks for all the well wishes and indeed we mentioned before the, the, the couple of packages that came through, that's just incredible so thanks to everyone in that final word village that we got going there and if you want to be part of that uh, as far as the patron page is concerned at patreon.com forward slash the final word that's in the show notes and yeah looking forward to swatting up in quarantine over the next couple of days for our next story time edition come friday saturday we all live in a final word yellow submarine uh, also remember if you're on the patron page and you live in the blue mountains you can uh, send us a message and get my tickets to go and see earth boy on friday night if you <laughs> want uh, you can take one other person or you can send two people who are not you i don't mind get in touch send us an email or send us a dm on the old patreonies that's about it for this week the final word is released on the bad producer podcast network they have a bunch of other shows so give them a michael googlay and uh, see what might interest you thanks to dc who edits the show I, I was going to say we couldn't do it without him. We could do it without him, but it would be a much longer and much shitter show <laughs> and it wouldn't be in order. It wouldn't be chronological. It would be like the bit that we recorded when we do you want to tell, realised that we stuffed do, do, do something you want, up. Do you want to tell those who have been with us at the end of this app how we actually recorded today? Is if you've, if you've made it this far, do you deserve to know how we've recorded today? Okay, this might be like the the little scene that pops up after the credits in, in say, the last episode of Westworld. They like doing this at the end of a season where there's something that, that, sh- that shows you how things change. Okay, so we recorded the start, not the start, we recorded the very start <laughs> and then then the, the central middle, say, like the middle, the middle uh, three-eighths, and then we recorded the end, like the last three-eighths. And then I had to go and watch the T20 and then we recorded the bits about the T20s and the one-dayers and then we record, re-recorded the bits about South Africa and England because the results had come in by then. Um, and then somehow DC is either going to have put it all together or decided that he's going to stitch us up completely and just release it as is. Uh, we don't know. This is the thing. Every every week, twice a week, it's it's an exercise in trust. We, we close our eyes and we fall backwards at camp and DC... So far has always caught us. Thank you. Uh, that, that, that's, I think that's enough for this week. Um, drop us a line. Get in touch. We're always here watching the cricket and talking about it. Uh, God bless you for listening. It's the final word. We'll see you later. I had to go about it.